This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Last week, I was honoured with the privilege of representing New Zealand at the inaugural ISOTC307 Blockchain and Distributed Ledger Technologies Standards Committee meeting. The event was hosted by the Secretariat, Standards Australia. 18 nations attended. The event itself will be the subject of a blog post when I get around to writing it. In the interim, I am trying to assemble a, a bunch of attendees to discuss the goings on within the confidentiality agreements that uh, we're bound to. While at the meeting, though, and more pertinent to this, uh, this particular episode, blockchain legend Nick Addison wrangled together a who's who of crypto entrepreneurs for a roundtable discussion. We convened in the media room at the International Convention Centre. The group grew piecemeal over the course of three hours, during which we discussed everyone's projects and the state of blockchain in Australia. The participants were Tim Bass of Block 8, Bok Ko, who's a general internet denizen, and you'll, uh, you'll recognise some of his work when he gets talking, Sam Brooks, the CTO of Veridictum, Russell McLernan of Rex, Luke Anderson of Sigma Prime, Sergei Serenjenko of Chronobank, and Matt Hale of Divi. Conspicuously absent were Chris Mountford of Digital Asset Holdings and Connor Svensson. My bad, I could have given them a warning. I've split the conversation into two episodes, and there will be a separate one with Nick, because, well, this is Nick Addison we're talking about here. Before we get stuck in, I want to draw your attention to the Blockchain New Zealand Conference, which is, uh, will be held next month, and the Auckland and Wellington Blockchain Meetups, where a bunch of cool goings-on are, uh, are taking place in the, uh, in the intervening weeks. Things are gathering pace down here, and with Vitalik soon to grace our shores with his presence, the whole country is a buzz. You can pick up conference tickets at a discount by following the link in the notes at etherreview.info. I'll be there, and everyone will be invited to my place for a barbecue in the days following, provided you can make it down my driveway. So let's hear from the guys in Sydney. First up, we have Tim Bass on joint real estate investing, then Bok Co on decentralized exchanges and derivatives markets. After some general chat, Sergey discusses Chronobank and Russell explains Rex. Before we move into discussions about usability, insurance and end user friendly key management, Sam outlines the processes behind the operation of Veridictum to top off the episode. So with me today, we have uh, Tim Bass and Bucky Pooba. Bucky Pooba. <laughs> yes. Uh, so for a start, so tell us about Block 8, uh, yep. Raison d'Etre, and, uh, and some new projects. All right. So Block 8, uh, we co-founded the, the business six months ago. Um, the, the team, uh, we all come from sort of technology background. So most of us are solution architects, or we've spent you know, 10 to 15 years in technology anyway. Um, and I started working with cryptocurrencies back in, say, 2013, 2014, mainly just around sort of buying and selling stuff. And I was fascinated with the, the scale of, of blockchain technology and how it could potentially build applications. Um, so we got together and we said, look, um, we think Ethereum's at the point now we could possibly do something with it. So let's, let's sort of put our brains together and, and potentially 
do something. And uh, and so what? Uh, so blockade. What is that? Right. What do you so the the idea behind blockade is we felt immediately there was a lot of science projects in the space and a lot of smart people that are trying to solve some really difficult problems. And we decided between ourselves that if you don't understand the sort of business problem or if you don't have the deep expertise in that particular industry or the subject matter expertise, um, it's very difficult to get it to the commercialization stage. So we said, well, look, if, if we bring the capability together, we understand how to commercialize projects from our previous backgrounds. All we need to do is sort of consult and, and meet people that actually have these problems. And then collectively, we can joint venture and potentially build applications that solve that problem. Um, and then take it to market and hopefully make a difference. So what are some of the projects that you've... Uh... So the first problem we wanted to solve was actually between ourselves. So as, as four co-founders, obviously you're going to issue shares to each of the co-founders. Um, and traditionally that's done sort of in a spreadsheet or in a very sort of paper-based format. So what we wanted to do was build a platform where we could track and measure that. Um, so I guess for us it was a compliance and governance strategy. In Australia that's called RegTech. Um, so the idea is that we want to create a platform where you could issue shares to each of us uh, in an immutable fashion, where we could track the cap table, where we could do vesting options and profit share and all the things that we think we're going to need for ourselves, but also for the businesses that we potentially build in the future. So it's going to potentially be an opportunity for uh, some crowdfunding and, and, and sort of some equity raising opportunities in the future. Um, and that was sort of a problem that, that was sort of burning us. So we, we decided to build that first. And um, <clears throat> what level of uh, completion is it? Uh, it's actually quite good at the moment. We're in a private beta. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, we've built a product that's working. It's a fully working web app, fully integrated with a private Geth instance. So it's a, a, an Ethereum blockchain. Um, mobile app integration built on the latest web stack, you know, React, Media, fully integrated. Um, and we're currently testing it with particular businesses, usually private, sort of small businesses that have these problems. And the idea is that in the next month or so, we'll be going on public blockchain. No way. Yep. What about how does it uh, how does it interface? This is this actually comes to something that um, uh, that was brought up during the standards meeting, and that's that law is itself a standard that we need to interoperate with. Yes. And so it sounds like this is exactly that uh, that piece that interoperates between. With, you know, that connects both blockchain and law. Yeah, so one of the things we, we needed to qualify early on was, are we just building a science project, like I said? So we met with ASIC and we said, look, this is what we're trying to do. What do you think? And they said to well, us, ASIC's the Australian regulatory body that manages sort of securities. Um, and you want to make sure you're inside that framework, otherwise you butt up against regulation immediately. So it's in their interest to make sure that you're protecting retail investors from sort of you know, dodgy schemes and things like that. So we met with them. We said, look, this is what we want to build. Uh, the, the company data we'd be capturing is publicly available anyway, so it's a great use case for the public blockchain. And they said to us, as long as you're not dealing with money and creating secondary markets, then you're actually more than, they're more than happy to support us. And they think it's actually a really good way for us to improve the way ASIC manages companies and all that stuff today. So we're taking that basic functionality that lives in a, in a paper binder today, you know, with deeds and shareholders agreed and so what have you, digitizing all of that and then using the blockchain to prove it's happened when it happens. Awesome. Yeah. And so uh, so what is the so you've got another one as you've got another project as well, a Cribber, right? Yeah, so Cribia is the project. Cribia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Everyone got the one. Okay, so um, we felt the MyStake was a really good use case and we wanted to solve that problem to prove that blockchain technology works and that we can actually do what we say we do. 
But one of my major passions is property. And in Australia, it's a very, very inflated market. It's very difficult for people to sort of you know, compete. Um, so it, I wouldn't call myself the subject matter expert on this, but it's something that I care very deeply about. So we wanted to look at the possibility of doing a peer-to-peer -peer ownership model um, with property. And there are some out there, but they, they're fairly rigid and they usually involve unit trusts and things like that. You know, there are some uh, companies that do it fairly well in Australia, and I won't mention their names. Um, but what we wanted to do was sort of democratise that process and give people the chance to own their rental history and, and their data and then use that as proof that they're a potential credit risk or potential good investment for, for other investors. So today you have problems around, you know, you know, borrowing a huge amount of debt from the bank to get into a, an investment. So, but what if, say, two of us decided, I'm a good uh, credit risk, I've got a good rental history, and you potentially see value in that. What if you were to invest in, in buying a partial share of the property I want to live in? Um, so in terms of what it could potentially mean, it, it's very impactful, but the technology needs to catch up. So at this stage, we're still, un we're still unwrapping the business logic and all that sort of thing. Um, and then we're going to sort of start testing it in sort of particular fields. And this is a direct response to the horrific uh, cost of living in, um, or cost of renting in yeah. New Zealand and Australia right now, which is appalling. It's an absolute, like, it's a genuine, <laughs> like serious, uh, yeah. serious generational threat. Cool. <laughs> so I heard recently um, at the Mortgage Summit uh, that, in Australia, it's the average deposit is 164% of someone's median salary. So just to get the opportunity to participate, you need to save 164% of your annual salary. Just to even have, get the ticket yep. for entry. Yep. So just a basic deposit. And obviously banks have had issues where you know they're now being... Um, government's making sure they don't lend 95% of the loan, for instance. So they want 20% deposit going forward, right, just for good, good banking reasons. Point being, by the time you save that money, the market's moved again, right? So you, you never really catch up. You can never save enough to participate. So we said, well, what if you just invested the money you could save and you would have this network effect of people not borrowing money anymore? People would just simply invest what they can afford to invest, and that would kind of reverse the debt model. And that would work well with this, uh, this kind of strange situation we found ourselves in where our parents have have property, huge amounts of property in some cases, and, uh, and our generation's comp completely locked out of the market. Yeah, well, I had a conversation with a friend of mine I work with, and he's not that much younger than me. He's in his mid-20s, and we were talking about you know, potentially buying a property and what have you, and he, he, I was flabbergasted. He was completely just okay with the fact he'll never own anything. He said, oh, no, it'll, it'll never happen. It's fine. I'll just... I couldn't believe it. I said, really? Like, you, you just... There's nothing there. And he goes, look, most people my age are just given up that unless someone, you know, I inherit the money, there's no way I can afford to live. And I thought that was pretty sad. So we're not saying we're going to solve it overnight, but it's a passion piece for us and, and we definitely want to give it a shot. Yeah. Awesome. So, Bok, what are you up to in this space? Oh, my next projects... Um, is to build the equivalent of local Bitcoin um, and it's going to be called Global Ether Market um, and it's a whole series of escrow contracts where people can buy and sell Ethers and interface with um, the financial system through the escrow that Ethereum can provide. Um, so my first, the previous project I've been working on is the crypto derivatives um, 
and that involves um, the buying and selling of ERC20 tokens. So it started up with Golems, the Golem Network token, and when the crop sale finished, there were only a small number of people who got their hands on the Golem tokens. Um, and so there was demand for exchanges to list them, but none of the exchanges wanted to list them. The, um, the Golem organization um, they were not interested in getting the tokens exchanged anyway because they wanted to concentrate on the development. Um, so the crypto derivatives market was born from there. It took two days to build the first version. Uh, it took two and a half months to build the next version, which was just generalized ERC20 tokens. Um, so, so far, that, that site has um, transacted about $5 million worth of um, ETHERS versus tokens. Um, so that was a good testing ground for me to see what the issues were. Um, and then the next issue, uh, next problem I'm trying to solve is to allow people to easily get into the Ether, the Ethereum system, buying Ethers. Currently, you have to go through Bitcoins and then um, trans um, <coughs> transfer your Bitcoins into Ethers. So I was thinking directly, um, just offer Ethers for sale and provide a secure smart contract system that allows buyers and sellers to interface. And um, last week I was thinking um, I need to upgrade to my tablet. The, the mobile communication is dying, so I needed a new tablet. Um, I ended up getting just a 4G dongle um, to handle that. But otherwise I was thinking, oh, where can I get a tablet and pay in Ethers? Um, there's no way where you can easily buy um, items for eaters, so I, I thought eBay. Well, how about eBay? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, those are my next two projects are the global eater market and um, some sort of eBay. Um, so, working on it. Um, so, currently, I'm self-funded, um, but I'm trying to see whether there's um, a way to get crowdfunding to speed up development. Um, I'm currently considering um, Vlad Zemfiris, um he, he published a safe token um, system, safe token market. It's a token that you can uh, have a continuous crowdfund with. So it has a, a floor price and a ceiling price and you can always buy and sell from the token itself. Um, so if you start off with, let's say, the floor price being 98 and the ceiling being 102, an investor can buy at 102 and at any time they can sell at 98. So the loss will be limited to, you know, five, five or so percent. Um, but the access to the crowdfunder is only that five percent. And... As time goes along, you increase the spread. The spread? Yeah. Whoa, that is awesome. Yeah. Oh, man. That would have got me out of all the scenario trouble. Yeah. So, so with the spread, then um, you can, and you've got to work out the parameters to this spread. Um, so if your project is going to come good in, you know, the first version in, let's say, three months' time, then you get your spreads to widen then. So the project is more proven, um, and then you get access to the funds. Um, but yeah, I'm still working on that. So you're just a solo operator in Australia? Um, yes, yes. So it's, um, yeah, just like a lot of people in the Ethereum ecosystem, you have communications with people around the world. Um, 
and so you can tap into knowledge and mm. um, yeah, get information from a lot of people overseas and in Sydney itself there's a nice Telegram Australia group where people put a lot of nonsense in but among the nonsense you find some gems yeah. um, and then there's a Sydney Ethereum meetup. Um, I'm also working with um, a group in the UK and Europe, um, they're called Sikoba, um, and they're planning to build a um, IOU blockchain system. So you would have, let's say, if we trust each other, I might extend an IOU to you and you to him, and um, indirectly I can get an IOU to, to you through Arthur. Um, and so the you, you, the idea is to have small groups that extend IOUs to each other and within the group you have um, people who have IOUs with other groups. So it becomes a, um, a system where you can have IOUs across the world um, through relationships within people. And um, I've been particularly interested in um, the community currencies and this um, is a model that allows people to create their own community currencies. So it's meant to be low cost um, and yeah, for the unbanked as well, it's quite interesting. So what are the challenges you guys find operating in Australia? Because I find that Australia is, what's going on here, this huge amount of stuff going on in Australia, especially around Sydney, and yet, <clears throat> and yet the rest of the world doesn't seem nearly a, nearly so aware as of what's going on here is, is in, say, Palo Alto or, uh, or New York or, um, or the Netherlands or... Well, what I've found is the, the level of funding most of the Australian startups can get access to is uh, substantially smaller than what you can probably generate in Silicon Valley or some of the other big ecosystems. So we've sort of got a bootstrap mentality where if we can't commercialise it ourselves or at least build enough value to raise money from it, then it probably isn't going to work. So we've got a pretty lean approach. Um, and at the end of the day, you can throw a lot of money at something, but if you haven't sort of you know, figured out that business model, then it's, it's difficult to get it across the line. So I think most Australians have a, a pretty lean approach. And we sort of try as try to break it as early as possible. And so, how did you guys get involved in Ethereum in the first place? Well, I've got to give credit to the Ethereum meetup in Sydney. Actually, yeah, um, we spent uh, well. It's basically, it's once a month, and you we've eventually got to know each other. But I, I started going to the meetup about eight or nine months ago, and uh, I haven't missed one actually. Uh, but yeah, you start to speak to some of the guys in our space, like you know Nick Addison, who I'm sure you know very well great guy and some other people that really put a lot of effort into the space but um, a lot of the people there just love the technology love the potential and uh, yeah so we just stay in touch and foster those relationships and yeah it's been good mm, for me um, in 2015 I went to a Sydney Matt's financial workshop um, and someone described the uh, trusted platform a trusted network out of untrusted computers and that was Bitcoin um, but I was trying to work out what can I do with it. Um, and then Ethereum came along um, mid-2015. Um, at that time, I, um, I was working with a client and they said, um, can you do some research into blockchains for us? They were an exchange, um, uh, fiat currency, financial instrument exchange. 
And so I started doing the research and um, I have never stopped. I had to quit because um, I wanted to keep on doing the research. They wanted me to do the normal work, but that was boring. So I um, quit and jumped into the Ethereum system. And it's been fairly exciting. Um, the, the DAO hack was interesting. Um, I was um, looking, I was doing the analysis on you know, the, the transactions happening. Um, with the DAO hack and uh, before the DAO hack and then the DAO hack occurred and um, so it was natural to just continue doing the analysis and that led to the refunds and I'm still helping out with the refunds. Um, 15th of um, April the, the ETC, the Ethereum Classic refunds will be seizing and um, there's still about 20 million outstanding in the refunds um, and trying to get people to withdraw their refunds. Um, so since then, um, yeah, Ethereum to me is like a giant box of Lego. Um, and every day there's new pieces coming out and you're trying to work out what to do with it. Um, so I'm a, I've got the tools to, and I'm looking for solutions to apply yeah. it to. Um, it's exciting. Awesome. Hey, well, fantastic. Um, this has been really great, guys. I guess I will try and track down the rest of the team yep. and uh, continue the conversation. You can play the sandbox. Nothing oh, like a sandbox. I'll leave, I'll leave you with you. Right. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. No worries. Do do do, do sit in crowd. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, let's go around and do a quick introduction um, for the audience. I've already got these guys. So, um, I'm Sam Brooks. I'm CTO for Veridictum.io. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Russell McLennan, uh, I'm uh, co-founder of Rex. Um, my other partner is in based in New York, and we're building a real estate platform. Yeah, we're hoping to disrupt some major industries in the process. Cool. G'day, guys. I'm Luke Hansen. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney, and more recently have started a company called Sigma Power, and we do blockchain and information security consulting. So as long as we've got like this awesome panel, um, let's talk a bit about what we were talking about before, and that is Australia's place in blockchain, Sydney's in particular, and, uh, and what the peculiarities of operating down here are, and, and, what, it, and what the uh, developments taking place in Australia mean for the rest of the space. Well, it's certainly true to say that I think the blockchain slash Ethereum community in, in Australia and Sydney in particular is very, very strong. Uh, I've heard anecdotally that uh, the numbers that we get to Ethereum meetups, for example, are some of the biggest in the world, um, bigger than sort of New York and that sort of thing. So, uh, how many do you get? So it's over hundred. Yeah, about one hundred and fifty registered to the last most recent right. one, and I think about a hundred, just over hundred, rocked up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of pizza. It was, it was big. It was yeah. <laughs> we, we we ordered a whole bunch of pizza and then went. Holy crap, it's all gone. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> we'll have to find a new sponsor. So. But what's curious is uh, Bitcoin seemed to have a, uh, a hold on Melbourne. At the, uh, and Melbourne was a hub for Bitcoin development. But Ethereum seems to be Sydney. I mean, uh, again, that probably anecdotally, but uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's uh, curious as well. Don't ask me why. No. I think uh, Coinjar was a big player uh, and then Melbourne-based. I think they had a lot of 
because I also noticed um, at the Tyro FinTech Hub, there were a bunch of blockchain startups and kind of like Sydney is, a, is itself a FinTech Hub. Um, FinTech is in the air down here. And I think not only just FinTech as well, but like startups in general, the sort of innovation space here is, is massive. There's so many incubators and co-working spaces mm-hmm. popping up all That's over right. the place. Yeah. Um, everyone wants to start a startup. They come to Sydney. They don't, they don't tend to choose Melbourne or anywhere else. Right. right. Sydney is the capital of Australia, just in case anyone's. Yeah. And in my research, I noticed I was looking around uh, this from some years ago now, but looking at blockchains and Ethereum, just on Google Trends, and you know, and you sort of note that Sydney's always in the top top two or three, like well well in front of stuff places like San Francisco. Which you, which you would think would be the tech, mm. tech leaders in this space, but from Google Trends is, yeah, as you say, anecdotal. Um, I've I've noticed that actually on uh, on listener stats as well, and and especially given its like population in, in proportion to those other cities, it's like the, the actual proportion of people here that are listening must be much much higher. Do you think that's got something to do with Aussie being a like frontier nation? We think we have a lot of disposable income to be part of it, a bit of disposable time to look at new technologies. Um, but yeah, I guess we still we do have a bit of a history in frontier nation as a frontier nation. We like to we have a lot of gigs, we like to play with mm. tech. It's also highly educated. This country is sort of moving away from the minerals boom into other areas. And so I think we're lucky enough to have <coughs> enough resources to give things a shot. We don't rely on funding as much as some countries and we, we're prepared to fail. Yeah. In Sydney, we're also very lucky to have two very highly technical universities in the yeah. in the computer science space. So, University of Sydney and UNSW are both really out there in terms of computer science education. So, it's, yeah. What's funny in this group, though, is that there's no lawyers here. And if there's one thing I've noticed, it's that Sydney law is huge. In fact, I'd say it leads the world naively because I haven't I haven't really. Um, polled the, the US very well. But uh, none of us are getting paid to be here. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, what? There you go. Oh, yeah. How's it going? Sorry, Lee. Hey, not at all. So, yeah, uh, for, the, for, our, for our listeners, um, would you mind introducing yourself and, uh, and explaining uh, what you're up to in the blockchain space? Yeah, hi guys. Uh, my name is Sergei Sajenko and uh, I'm from a project called Corona Bank. We've just done a two months ICO, finished in February. And what we're doing, we're trying to tokenize uh, people's time on, on the blockchain. So essentially crossing out the intermediaries like HR companies and labor offer companies or labor hire companies in the process. So it's going well getting through the coding side of things and uh, hopefully we'll get there sooner rather than later. When I first heard that Corona Bank had an Aussie connection, it made me kind of think of the way you guys have this highly intermediated uh, workforce where everything seems to go through a recruiter here. Even the most basic jobs right. yeah. go through a recruiter. And that's funnily enough, that's what, how I got into Bitcoin really was I came here and there was a uh, labor glut in construction. And so all these, uh, all these contractors have been laid off and the recruiter's books were all full in Melbourne and I just could not get a job because 
I'd call up a recruiter like, nah, mate, we've already got enough labour. Like, we just, yeah. we've got all these people who have been laid off. And so I wound up just on the couch learning about Bitcoin for a whole year. <laughs> I did you a favour. <laughs> yeah, I guess they did. Like, it didn't feel like it at the time. We're, we're not sure to think they're good, right? So, no, nah, nah, yeah, in Australia, in Australia I, think, I think it's a progression where the jobs in Australia are so, well, secure rather, in, in other words, people have got, got, got grown accustomed to actually having jobs rather than, rather than always uh, scouting for that. And the uh, labor hire companies and the recruitment companies actually inserted themselves in, in this sort of position. And because the, with employing in Australia comes a lot of responsibility. And Australia and New Zealand, in fact, are the, pretty close to the only countries in the world that developed this thing because they, everybody's trying to shift the responsibility away. So in other words, like in Australia, the law is structured so that you you are essentially responsible for everything that happens to the person from the moment he leaves the front door to, to the moment he gets back, mm. including insurances, taxes, the whole thing, right? The other thing, so the other way to characterize it is uh, risk. Yes. So when someone hires somebody else, the balance of risk in that relationship rests with the employer. That's right. And and see, and then essentially out of that spawned the labor car and recruitment the way it did. Right. Because because everybody like nobody likes risk and uh, people capitalize on that and in some instances like you know recruiters and labor car companies they charge in, in excess of fifty percent just to, to to have someone there which is essentially a, a temporary job. So would you say that the current system is built on trusting intermediaries effectively? Essentially, yeah. Uh, well, it, it, it's really funny because it's built on trusting intermediaries. However, intermediaries are not really verified by anything. So in other words, you can you can start a labor hire company tomorrow without any licenses or anything. So, which is which is very funny. That's a, so the weakest link is in fact the labor hire company, because once again, like to 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 get a job as an employee, you need to have certain qualifications and meet certain standards. But to be placed by a labor hire company as an employee, you don't need to. You see, so 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 there's a because they absorb the liability for they absorb the liability, and a lot of the times it comes down to. I mean, that that comes with the system as well. A lot of the times it comes down to. I mean, the liability finishes at a PTYLTD, so what that means basically, if the liability hits a labor hire company, a lot of the times it's very profitable to just go under. And that's what happens. Mm. They lose the risk overhead, right? Because they're never going to be able to absorb it. That's right. So, wow, that's... It's, it's a relationship thing. And, and anything in relationship, right, as in person to person, right? So in other words, if I know someone who, who is responsible for sourcing labor for a certain company, he's obviously going to hire from me. With that, and in anything in, 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 in the blockchain space, and that's what we're kind of trying to solve here, right? Whenever you have a relationship sort of arrangement, it's always inefficient. And what I mean by that is obviously you're going to kick back or profit share your mate. You know what I mean? And that's what happens effectively. And it happens on all levels of this thing. So, and that's, as, as Chronobank and as LaborX, we're trying to kind of uh, dig into that, in, dig into the, that, the, those money. So where, where, where it's, it's, it's money that, that don't need to be spent effectively. You know, like, like you don't need to literally know the person who will go to school with him to be able to source labor from him. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, 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 we're trying to basically pick up inefficiencies in the current system and actually apply the best part of the system across the world. So just from, from adoption point of view, we're talking to, you know, unbanked Hispanics of America, right? And we're talking to Puerto Rico and we're talking to, well, let's call them like illegal illegal immigrants or the ones that actually came illegally but they became legal, right? In Russia, for example. And the countries like that, and I just met with a guy uh, from Nigeria, 
And in Nigeria, there's plenty of interest there because there people, well, they can't even identify themselves in front of someone, right? Yet alone, <laughs> like, you know, get paid for anything. So, so, I mean, there is definitely a problem like that. And I mean, even if we take some little bits of Australian system, which are good, which are like, like insurance, like, 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 well, insurance is, is the main primary driver here and apply it to the countries where there's nothing like it. Well, we're already kind of like, you know, we're already ahead. Mm. This sounds a bit like what you were talking about, Bok, with the um, IOUs. IOUs, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, that's an interesting system that um, currently, uh, well, looking at the Ethereum blockchain, it's a bit expensive in terms of transaction costs mm-hmm. to implement an IOU kind of system over it. Um, so this group, Sikoba, they are planning to build a low transaction cost system to implement the IOU systems within communities and then if you've got a link from one community to another community, then um, you can extend the IOUs across communities. We've got two different real estate uh, projects in the room. <clears throat> one being Kribia, yes, and the other one being Rex. Mm-hmm. What's the deal? So how does Rex work? What's the uh, idea behind that platform? So we're starting out by tackling the, uh, the listings uh, market where the the big incumbent players at the moment uh, basically have a monopoly over that and, and the data, uh, and they can, you know, they, they they exploit that by increasing their fees without much protest. Um, so we're looking to build an equivalent site based on the blockchain uh, to basically free the data, um, and as a result of that, uh, would have significantly reduced fees. So the, these companies that monopolise this industry uh, have huge fees for, for using that platform. Some of them don't even allow the, the public to use it. You have to go through an intermediary to list on that platform. So you're talking about uh, rental? Uh... Uh, everything, basically. I mean, uh, residential, commercial, uh, <coughs> rentals, leases, everything. So registries of properties for the purpose of, uh, of buying, selling and renting. Yeah, correct. This is this is really cool because, like I said, I just met with a Nigerian bloke. He's actually creating a rental system for for Nigeria, and I think we should I should introduce it to him yeah, because yeah. because it seems to me that that's that's right up your alley. Yeah, yeah. Because because in Nigeria as well, it's like eighty five percent of the population lives in the rental accommodation. Yeah. So I think that's that's mm. a, that's, a, that's a crazy market. Mm. Well, it's funny because this is this is coming up as I mean this is awful because we're really talking about the like the wealth gap crunch, right? And it's interesting that you get, and I've noticed this as well, is uh, when I when I did live here, was that you got these uh, these crushing brokerage fees just to get into a place, a whole month's rent, and as a fee, as it's like you're doing, you know, it's like these guys give me a break here, like yeah, yeah, yeah. We're look, um, we're hoping to reduce uh, you know those fees as, as much as possible, and. Um, yeah, the, uh, the I, I guess it, it's we're, we're trying to recreate these traditional websites uh, and base them off of blockchain, which is sort of the, has has been the big challenge. Is uh, how do you store con- user content uh, and and do it in a in a uh, in a cheap manner? Um, you know, obviously, transactions on Ethereum cost gas. Uh, we can't you know you, you're limited in how much space you can store and what data you can store. So. So we're, we're incorporating um, distributed file systems like IPFS, unlike a lot of other projects. 
to uh, keep the fees down. And so that is primarily based around the idea of just of, of freeing the information that's, that yeah. is currently siloed behind paywalls. Yeah, correct. Do you, is there a tie-in with Cribia and, uh, and the idea of these... Um, of this, of the siloed, uh, siloed information as well as um... look. I think one of the problems that we've experienced with all of our projects is um, that the UX around blockchain apps is largely unsolved. And what I mean by that is getting non-technical people that should be using your product to understand private keys and all that sort of <coughs> stuff is basically impossible at this stage right and so what there's kind of a balance between building an application that solves a problem that can be used by people that aren't just techies like us but um but also trying to keep it as decentralized and sort of you know utopian as possible so at least with our projects we've got a mixture of traditional web stack services you know you sort of reacts natives and mongo and stuff like that um, and then where that then meets the blockchain so you're using the blockchain to to store what's required and sort of using it as a tool that doesn't solve every problem, right? So connecting that together is important, but going back to that point before, the data is hard because you need to um, abstract that away from the user and store it centrally in a lot of cases, right? So you're either storing the private keys in sort of a in an encrypted manner on the on the platform, and then sort of, you know, like Coinbase is a good example, they abstract the private keys and you sort of have a username and password and what have you. So that seems to be the best approach at the moment. Um, in the future, as the platform that I'm talking about, the Ethereum platform, as it improves, I think we're going to give back control and access to each of the users. In short of running a missed wallet for every user that uses your platform, it's going to be pretty difficult to do it today. So that's kind of um, one of the... We obviously want our customers to own their data, but we find UX is kind of the main reason why it's difficult to achieve in our market today. That's almost impossible. Yeah, I've tried exactly. to explain it. Uh, to my wife, as, a, as, a, as a, like if something happens to me, how to transfer Ethereum? <laughs> <laughs> that that has been that has been a big 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 task. Yeah. I mean, especially if it's in multi-sig, then you've got real issues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think these uh, hardware wallets are probably a good uh, step in the right direction, yeah. where an average Joe could just have this and plug it in and just go create the transactions. Yeah. Yeah. So the mind, the wallet concept will be quite useful to be able to integrate into your platform. Well, when, when, when it matures, not, not currently. It's, yeah. <laughs> because um, now currently you need to... Like, like, the JSON file yeah. and all that. Yeah. Like you, you need to use cryptography to, to, to store it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, try to explain, like, you know, Kuznetsky algorithm, you use Russian FSB inside VeraCrypt to encrypt your canister is a little bit frustrating. My Ether wallet with the hardware, Legend Nano S, you just plug it in and it's beautiful. It just comes up with the keys. So the so you don't have to store the user's keys on a site like yours if you could integrate some of the client-side decryption with a hardware dongle, it'll just be like a card or something. The problem comes down to it when what happens when you lose it? Um, like, with my the wallet. Um, no, so when, when you lose the hardware wallet. The hardware wallet. So it's a seat. Um, so I've, I've been working with um, Instant on the Waves blockchain and they've got a system where the seats are encrypted and then stored back on mm. uh, a server. So a user can later on go, on, go back onto the server and request their seat and put in their encryption key and the seat then reappears. But what if they lose the encryption key to the seed. 
Well, it'll be like a password, so yes, yes. no problem. So I kind of compare it to, imagine you went to your, your net bank, right, your, your, your online banking, and you had to type in a pre-shared key to initiate SSL with ComBank. Like, no one would use online banking, right? So we're kind of at that stage where it's abstracted away through SSL, so we just accept it and use it, and the browser does it for us. I think when Web3 applications can work in native browsers without us even knowing what we're doing, then it will literally take off, and I think we'll get that utopian view we all want. That doesn't solve the problem of authentication. Yeah. The problem is even with Web3 and if everything's still there, we've still got to use our private keys as authentication. Yeah. And the problem is as soon as you lose your private key, your password, your private key, um, okay, yeah, you might have some other backup, but people are very good at forgetting stuff. Spot on. Your entire life has just disappeared. Your entire digital life there has disappeared. Yeah. So we need to come up with more user-friendly ways to distribute our identity and distribute our mm. mechanism of authentication. What about, uh, what about the Estonian... Um, Certification system. It works well because it's very centralized. They they it's distribute keys, but there's a central authority there who says that is your key, and we also have a copy of it. And when when you go and do this sort of stuff, we can reissue this again. Where the, the problem, see, see, the problem. One of the like I was thinking about adoption, and I was talking to a few people as well. With when the when the debit cards came out, right, and everything, right, people started using it and like readily use it online as well because Visa and Mastercard guarantee transactions. With these things, currently as we stand, right, so you can, like, assume you have, I don't know, a thousand ether on your wallet or something, right, which is a significant amount of money mm-hmm. now, in our case, currently, right, and you run a transaction through, or you do a selfie and private keys exposed or something like that, right, which a lot of people do and <laughs> keep doing, you know what I mean? Uh, then you're going to lose everything and nobody guarantees everything. So, like, as, as, as much as I hate to say it, there needs to be something in the, in the, in the, in the maybe insurance type product. Where where the transactions are guaranteed to a certain degree, like and, and that will, will will kind of when you can say to people, okay, use this, and if you stuff up, well, you know, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll recover the funds for you. Like it needs some something like that needs to happen because like there's nothing easier than drain somebody's Bitcoin wallet. You know what I mean? If you if you if you got if you got the, if you got the private key, and I mean, it could be it could be your life savings, including your identity in there. Yeah, yeah. You know, so if you tie it up to identity, and in fact. Here, like this, this, this humanic thing just launched it just recently. SEO, they they doing biometric identity now. That explode. They just opens up all kind of worms there, right? With the with the cardboard cutout <laughs> yeah, with head with people with people <laughs> still in the biometric dimensions and everything. Yeah. That's crazy. And anyone who's working on biometric is they gone the wrong way. <clears throat> it's but that's a, that's a thing. You see, like we, we're going towards we're going towards the way where some like people people are inert and they need to like even even PayPass. Remember PayPass mm. took took a lot to integrate, right? Like and banks had to and Visa actually had to say, okay, if if your money is stolen, right, they limit the number of transactions, right? But then they say if your money is stolen, we'll refund it. Mm. Essentially, it's for people to start using it, right? But with this, it's it's a whole new kind of worms and like whoever can come up with a way to actually guarantee the transaction and the cash in there. Well, you know, that's going to be a win wicked there. I think they're able to do that because they've got such a massive network, right? That's right. Um, I think as the ecosystem grows and you'll start to see, you know, insurance dApps pop up that might want to, you know, insure people against losses. The premiums will be very high because you've got to spread the risk across. The it depends on the people, right? It depends on how many people. Yeah, I mean, the, right. the, the, the visa can do it because they can, they can basically go to the bank and, it, and they take it from the bank. It's the bank's fault. And then the bank takes it from the merchant. Yeah. Or like, like you know, we, or if it's not, if it's stolen, then I guess the bank absorbs it. Yeah. You know, it's not the visa absorbing it. So, so that's solvable using um, smart contracts, and it's like a multi-sig. So you can have a limit, 
on how much. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can have living on per transaction. Yeah, That's right. And yeah. then, so the insurance or the company that's providing the insurance is, is one of the parties to the multi-seek. Yeah. And they'll, they will that's allow actually, a transaction limit um, without the, their involvement. That's right. And then when someone wants to transfer a lot of money, um, they contact that's that right. organization. So you can limit your risk that way. So then, then it becomes centralized. Off chain. Right? So yeah, well, yes. To the point, so I mean, we're going back to centralized. Yeah. It's because yeah. centralized systems are just way, way, way easier. Well, the easier, the easier, well, you know, what to say, it's right. You know, yeah, it's, right. I mean, this is like you got user experience in this end, and you have fully decentralized on this end, and you got to find your That's right. That's right. 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 You're not, you, but you can't live by that. That's right. That's what we've mainly focused on is trying to find a, an app that's usable in the real world that still uses the important parts of the blockchain. Mm. Um, but the utopian view, of course, is having that truly decentralized application that that you know mum and dad can use yeah yeah what actually i'm going to take my plane of ux and uh fully decentralized i'm going to add another dimension to that and say money spent oh yeah you right pick two right if yeah. you if you want a fully really good ux and fully decentralized you're going to spend a buttload of cash making it so yeah so true that's uh is that Zuko's triangle? Triangles. People love triangles, yeah, eh? Love <laughs> um, okay, so uh, so well, we, we've we've covered everything except for veredictum. Mm. So, veredictum's overarching mission is to uh, reduce video piracy. Uh, and but. Oh, okay, but I'll say that out loud. Bok is shaking his head vehemently. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of people I speak to sort of have that same reaction. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think so. The argument goes: if you um, if you have more money flowing to the content creators, where where the value is generated, then you're going to end up with more valuable things. So. Um, as we understand the problem, it's 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 highly multifaceted, and it's not going to be solved with with just one solution. So what Veridictum is is building, is designing. What I'm designing at the moment is a a toolbox to help solve a lot of these problems associated with with piracy, and it's it's content piracy in general. We're sort of focusing on the video part. So in terms of the toolbox. Uh, we're developing a, a, n- a number of products that will effectively help content creators manage their copyright. So in simple terms, uh, those tools are things like, first of all, creating a veridictum identity and then being able to register content to, in, to a public space, effectively a public blockchain. So you've got a linkage between an identity and... Uh, a hash of a digital file. The one of the other tools that we've sort of got working in the lab at the moment is a tool to also embed within that that digital file a a watermark or a, or a fingerprint. So after you perform some processing on the file, you um, are able to generate a new file that looks and sounds exactly the same but it's got some invisible and inaudible information buried in there. So at a high level, um, you know, I think in order to 
reduce piracy by video piracy by a significant degree, you, you really need to try and solve as many of those facets of the, of the problem as you can and do two sort of key things. One um, is to provide that technology to deter piracy and also provide technology to provide content in a way that's amenable to people wanting to, to consumers wanting to purchase it. So that is at a price point that's, that's reasonable and uh, the access as well. So besides the toolbox that Veridictum is, is developing, um, there, I'm currently designing a anti-piracy uh, search capability. So if you think about um, what happens between YouTube and Facebook quite commonly, where a content creator creates a video, they upload it to, to YouTube, and then a... Um, a third party downloads that content from YouTube and then strips it of any content information and re-uploads it to Facebook. That's lost revenue in, in the eyes of the, of the content creator and to a greater or lesser extent uh, a significant problem to, to, to those creators. Um, and in order to solve the problem, actually, what is required at the moment is for... Uh, uh, the content creator to first of all realise that the content has been stolen and in the second instance they need to log log on to Facebook and fill out a form which might take five minutes and enter in all the details about you know, the, the infringement and then at some point in the future Facebook is uh, required under the Digital Millennium Corporate Act to, to take the material down. But in that case, it's already too late, right? The damage has already been done. The, the views have been lost and or the content owner's time has been lost. So another tool in the toolbox that we're creating is a, um, is a, is a function to, to automate that process to issue a takedown notice to the likes of Facebook. And coupled with an ability to um, detect where material has been copied illegally from one place in the internet to another place, we think provides a quite a powerful value proposition for content creators. Um, How does it work, though? Good question. Glad you asked. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so the, the, the thinking goes that um, it, the, if you have a look at the search space for just... For Facebook in terms of video, per day we're talking sort of hundreds of uh, terabytes of data every day that one would need to look through um, and then process in order to understand whether or not that, that material is, is copyrighted. So if you imagine a situation where uh, content creators are using the Veritical platform and they are watermarking and registering their content, so it links back to a Veritical identity, you have... Uh, content that's released on the internet that, that has this, this information embedded into the file. And I'm quite pleased to say that the, the, the watermark is actually quite invariant to transformation. So in the lab, we've even been able to record 
a on, on a smartphone a video file and re-parse that new file in order to detect the, the, the information. That's steganography, isn't it? It is. It's exactly correct. Yeah. And you can actually film a phone film. with, and that and that steganographically uh, hidden or embedded information can be extracted from a video of it. From a video of, of the video, so to speak, correct. That's totally amazing. It's so all the um, it's <laughs> like mind blowing. It's like rights management heaven. It's 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 very cool tech. So anyway, so imagine that we're content creators are using these tools and uploading um, files that that have this information buried in it. Um, imagine, just imagine a you know, twenty fifty six bit key or something like that. So if you if you have a look at the problem, okay, how do we how do we consume the the search space where we think the pirated material is going from. And if you reduce the problem to saying, okay, taken from YouTube, uploaded to Facebook, we're talking about sort of hundreds of terabytes per day. Impractical or very, very expensive to do with a centralised system. Okay, so what's the next logical step? Potentially is a decentralised system. So the idea being that we would recruit... Uh, nodes which would use their latent processing power and bandwidth to uh, look at just small sections of the search space. So the protocol that I'm designing at the moment would uh, per every time period divide up the search space and then provision that search space to uh, the actors or the, the nodes in the network and then those nodes would process and then return a result. The result would be, is one of those files in the search space uh, watermarked and is it in a place that, that it shouldn't be? So it's a, it's a binary result and that gets fed back into uh, the requester who has paid to perform that search. And, of course, you know, that, would, that, that value transfer between the person or the, the content creator uh, paying for a service and the provision of that service would be managed using a cryptocurrency, which is, as we know, very, very easy to, to implement. Uh, Could you crowdsource uh, the public to perform a similar role? Uh, like give them a, a small token kickback for identifying... So that's kind of the idea. That's kind of the idea. Um, the sense of community, I think, will, will be important for this to work. Um, I sort of imagine this working and I'm, I'm trying to design it in such a way that it doesn't need a discrete business to be set up like, like a Bitcoin mining business might be set up to process proof of work in order to keep the search cost low it would be predicated on willing actors using their latent resources to search and I can go like further into it uh, in terms of you know how do you perform verification and stuff like that but it's effectively um, you, you know if you if anyone is familiar with the way Golem works or with the way TrueBit works, and I read that one too as well, uh, you, there's no easy way cryptographically to verify a remote computation for a, a, a generalised program. So the way most people solve this problem is that they, they have to reperform the computation. So this uh, system wouldn't actually be run on a single public chain. 
the current design that I'm looking at is to have a number of micro blockchains for which each uh, micro network performs the computation for one sector of the search space so that each uh, actor in the micro network can cross verify just for that one computation, just that one time period. So say for argument's sake, you might have uh, five randomly selected nodes in the micro chain and they might look at say five or 20 files in a search space and the consumption might be something of the order of 10 gigabytes or something like that per time period. That time period might be half a day, something of that nature. So that's that's how you, you overcome that problem and uh, you use sort of, uh, the submission of Merkle proofs to make sure that at each um, at each step in the computation, everyone is cross-validating everyone else's work that they performed. And at the end, you generate a, a proof, which is not a cryptographic proof, it's more of a probabilistic proof that you can say with high probability, this group of um, assuming non-colluding nodes in a microchain have produced a a result that through probability we think is 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 verifiable. It's verified to within four nines or five nines sort of probability. So that's sort of how, how we're going to solve it. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get the, um, how do you prevent the major players from abusing your system and abusing the general public? I recently had a takedown notice from uh, sort of hidden takedown notice from Genesis Mining. Right, yes. Um, because I had a con uh, statement, a small statement that said um, there are 24 month contract for Ethereum mining is going to be useless if the proof of stake uh, comes in six months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's, a, that's a legal question. I mean, whether or not you did, you've done the wrong thing is, you know, it, that's up, up to the law to decide, right? It's, yeah, but um, then all these big players will just send out lots of these notices and even if a small percentage hits that people pay up um, or take down. But this is different because it has to actually have the proof of the proof of duplication, right? Well, what we're, we're calling it notionally proof of discovery. If I don't say that, my CEO will, will probably be on too. Notionally calling it proof of discovery, but um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a proof, but not the proof that a cryptographer would understand a proof to be. It's a falsifiable piece of evidence. Yeah. Um, required to be attached to the actual yeah. takedown submission. Correct. And you, you can add verification layers on the top. This is what uh, TrueBit are working on, where you can add you can add a gamification layer at the top uh, using deposits from, from the actors that are doing these computations to say, you know, at any point in time, if we think that there's been collusion and you've produced the wrong result, someone else can come in and re-perform perform those functions and then if it's proven that uh, through cryptography that you've done the wrong thing then you know you lose your deposits or something of that nature so how many people here are just hardcore pirates show of hands <laughs> no hands <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I, I don't have the time I'm too busy <laughs> how many people here are hardcore pirates I mean I don't I don't have a parrot
This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview. Review.